0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: Meeting China Halfway, How to Diffuse the Emerging U.S.-China Rivalry, written by Lyle Goldstein, is really, I think when we talk, it is not mainstream. I would venture to say that that it has been um, viewed as interesting by those in the policy community and the think tank world but viewed I think very much as too accommodating to China's development. Um, but it, is, it, has an, it has an analysis of existing literature and it, then it has specific ideas about how to create this virtuous cycle, which is something which you know, we've always heard about, the downward spiral. And Lyle kind of reverses it and talks about kind of this virtual cycle. So what we'll do today is, you've got his bio, so I won't go over it again, but he's from the Naval War College, and he will start out by saying he does not represent the U.S. government in these views, which he really doesn't have to say, because the U.S. government does not share those views. But um, it's terrific to have you here. Thank you so much for coming down from Newport. And... um, You'll speak for about 25 minutes. I'll ask him some questions, and then we have a distinguished audience here who can ask some questions, too. But welcome. Thanks. Thank you for coming.
2: I'm uh, so pleased to be here. Thank you, Steve, for uh, hosting this event. And uh, those at the National Committee, through um, the years, so I've certainly um, really admired the work of the National Committee. I think they play just an incredibly important role in... Uh, They play an incredibly important role in U.S.-China relations, uh, let's say in the trenches, trying to improve the relationship. So I'm uh, grateful for that work and and honored to uh, come here to share some ideas. Um, Well, my daughter always said I should start with a joke and then get to the point. So, um, but I, you know, (laughs) looking for my joke this evening, I I haven't found one. I'm I'm quite uh, disturbed about uh, the trajectory of U.S.-China relations, I, and, and I, I find little to joke about these days. With, uh, I, gu- I guess my this this painting here could could almost pass for a joke in some quarters. Uh, if you like the film Top Gun, I don't know if you can see that in the back, but it shows a uh, a Chinese Su-27 in a very very close confrontation with uh, one of our uh, P-8 anti-submarine aircraft. Uh, and you may scratch your head and say, well, did, is this the thing that happened last uh, two weeks ago and was shown on CNN? And no, it is not. But it is the thing, that, the incident that occurred about a year ago. Uh, it was August 2014, and there was a very close uh, call. Uh, and I would just start this discussion by suggesting that uh, even, let's say, despite maybe what we're reading in the headlines, uh, the, the two militaries are out there interacting on a daily basis, and I'm very disturbed by what I've been seeing uh, over the last uh, several years. And I think, I think that, uh, to get to my bottom line, as my, my daughter has reminded me to do, uh, I think the two countries are locked in a kind of escalation spiral. And we need to reverse that and instead think about cooperation spirals. So let me, uh, I'll lay that out a bit. And uh, by the end of my 25 minutes or so, I'll hopefully pitch a few ideas. Uh, about what those spirals look like, just by way of who I am. I'm a person, you know, I work for the U.S. Navy, I spend a lot of time in Naval War College thinking about Chinese submarines. That's really how I spend the bulk of my time. The the, uh, book was a bit of a uh, hobby project, but there is quite a bit of uh, uh, news on this front. I'm somebody who's very well acquainted with China's naval development and China's military capabilities. Uh, This uh, is probably a new type uh, Chinese submarine, and, and from what we can tell, as a you know, very fearsome payload of uh, uh, what are supersonic anti-ship cruise missiles, and probably not, folks not too well versed in naval affairs, but uh, that is a capability that the U.S. Navy does not have uh, today. That is a supersonic uh, submarine-launched anti-ship cruise missile. So what I'm I'm getting here at here is that uh, in some certain areas, that China is uh, beginning to. Um, exceed uh, U.S. capabilities, and that's something we want to keep in the back of our minds as we consider uh, the future of U.S.-China relations. So a cruise missile that can be launched from a submarine that would sink a ship? Yes. Okay. And that is supersonic. Uh, that being, uh, it actually, uh, well, I'll get to this further, but uh, you can watch a video of a test of this missile, and it's quite disturbing. Um, now, U.S.-China relations are in the news every day, and I think everyone here is well-acquainted. But here are what I see as kind of two bookends of the debate. Um, you see uh, Hugh White's book, uh, and also my advisor, it turns out, uh, Aaron Friedberg. Um, and you may have gathered where I stand in this debate. Um, you know, maybe it's – oh, excuse me. Wait. <coughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm using this as my timer there's no clock here so I want to make sure not to run over uh, into our Q&A but uh, you'll take, we'll take it as a mark of respect for my advisor that I've sort of uh, taken a, a contrary position to his uh, and I'm, you'll you'll note that my book is closer to, to Hugh White's position but I, I invite the reason I show this and kind of set myself in the context of this debate is I invite you all to read these books very carefully and make up your own mind I think we're all going to have to make up our uh, our minds about this. Uh, now, what does is, what is this cooperation spiral amount to? Uh, as you can see, here are some of the features that I think, but it, essentially it's I'm looking at, at step by step and uh, Steve put it very well, uh, trying to develop this kind of virtual cycle. Uh, and um, if I had to say, you know, there's so many books written now on U.S.-China relations, what is it that makes this book uh, unique? Well, one uh, one thing is that it. this is a book that um, uh, that delves very deeply into the Chinese sources. I mean, if I had to add them all up, I would probably peruse something on the order of uh, you know, close to 10,000 articles. Now, they're not all cited, of course, uh, but th- to find the articles that I thought were most important to discuss, uh, that is the kind of, uh, we're working with a kind of vast library of Chinese materials, and I do think the book gives quite a unique window into Chinese thinking on the various key <coughs> issues. And those issues span a very wide gamut. Uh, you know, climate. There's a chapter on climate change. More or less, a chapter. Even there's even a chapter on U.S. and Chinese strategic interaction in the Middle East. So you know, this hits some issues that aren't uh, often out there, as well as the key issues that we we always talk about. Those, uh, for example, uh, the Japan issue, the Korea issue. Um, but I, I think what makes this book really quite different is that. Um, this is a book that strives to um, put some ideas out out there on the table, some very specific recommendations, and that's not something you find in most China books. In fact, I, I brought a few of them along. Uh, you know, you, here's what you pick up maybe at the at the train station or whatever. Uh, uh, you know, Henry Paulson's book. By by all means, read this book, absolutely. But you get this kind of uh, you know typical kind of recommendation for um, you know what how to go forward with China. It says. You know, the U.S. should speak with one voice. Okay, you know, when's that going to happen? Um, <laughs> but,
1: uh,
2: you know, rec- here's another recommendation. Find China a better seat at the table. I mean, these kind of, this sort of, um, kind of anodyne, uh, kind of vague recommendations. Here's another great book, um, China Challenged Tom, by Tom Christensen, somebody who I greatly admire. But again, the recommendations are pretty... Um, Uh, You know, combine U.S. strength with diplomatic moderation. Uh, Here's another recommendation: is um, uh, the U.S. should listen to Chinese concerns. Uh, He says right about about as the book is ending. I mean, what I'm getting at here, folks, is that it's quite unusual for books about U.S.-China relations to actually make concrete proposals, and that is where uh, this book is very different. I set out 100 policy recommendations, 50 for Beijing. 50 for Washington, and I go about discussing them. And as Steve said, I go right at the conventional wisdom, uh, and I'm inviting a kind of debate. With, I'd like to have a debate here tonight. Uh, and uh, that that's really what I'm looking to spark. And what I want to do in the next few minutes, though, is show you just some of the evidence that that I looked at and how did I come to these conclusions. Um, uh, just to give you a visual sense of what we're seeing in terms of uh, China's uh, very dramatic military development. Um, you know, China is often described as a land power. That's that's certainly true, uh, and they're moving in different uh, directions there. But uh, as I uh, mentioned in that very first slide, we have this the beginnings of a kind of top gun culture, which is sort of curious and interesting on the one hand. But as you see it play out every day in the skies, uh, you know, proximate to China, we can see how this goes in some some dangerous directions. And then China, of course, is going to see. Uh, by all means, and that's something I follow really closely. And but I just added this slide recently to suggest this is the the largest and one of the most advanced shipyards in the world uh, near Shanghai. Uh, China is at a in a position with its industrial might that if it wants to, it can uh, rapidly increase its military forces in, in their uh, their scope. Uh, that to me is is quite obvious. Now, where is the debate going in the United States? Um, Uh, We've all seen uh, this kind of, this was in the Washington Post following the publication of those uh, photos, of course, and you can see that the, I think we can say that the, uh, you might want to say the hawks are having their day. (laughs) Uh, Here's a colleague of mine, actually, at Naval War College, Uh, and uh, this has become quite, it's become quite typical in our, uh, in our discussions on this subject to uh, talk openly about uh, rival, or even to talk openly about the possibility of war. And, uh, of course, that's very disturbing. Um, now, what I find also disturbing is that our discussions that have taken on more of a hawkish uh, character, that those are mirrored by what I see in the Chinese literature. And here, you know, this is a, a I don't know if anybody here reads Sai Jing. It's a wonderful uh, Chinese magazine. Um, mostly it's for sort of bank, the banking types, you know. You don't expect to see hawks coming out in Saijing per se. Uh, but there they are. You know, U.S.-China <coughs> trading relationships are intensifying on a daily basis. I know these are kind of hard to read back there. I'll read the key points here. Uh, and this this point about TPP, the U.S. obviously rejects the idea of inviting <coughs> China to participate in the TPP. I think that that will create some tension. But what I find particularly disturbing is kind of a fusion of those kind of economic tensions, which are, I think, certainly exist in the United States and also exist. Uh, China as well, but here's a a general, uh, uh, Chao Liang, Air Force General, and here he's actually talking about the economic relationship, but he's saying, uh, you know, that, of course, China confronts a mighty opponent uh, in the United States, and, uh, you know, the U.S. wants to maintain its financial hegemony, so to me, this this is a disturbing fusion of kind of economic anxiety with. Uh, the national security anxiety that we've seen as well. And, and when we look at, say, China's, some of China's military leaders, here's, I don't know, who recently retired. I think you could say he was the right-hand man of of uh, China's, uh, the leader of China's navy. And, you know, it's, if you can read this, it's, it's quite disturbing. He's saying, uh, the United States as the fundamental anti-Chinese force may seek to precipitate a crisis, hoping that internal difficulties could facilitate foreign aggression. Or that foreign aggression could cause internal anxiety. So, you know, that's a pretty. If, if this is a window into how Chinese military leaders think, it's pretty dark. Uh, they even said this in 2010, and since then, I think it's it's actually gotten worse. Uh, here, this was some uh, reporting. I watch a lot of Chinese TV, um, and here's some reporting about the uh, the so-called uh, Scarborough Shoal crisis that was in 2012, um, and you can see again really uh, kind of bellicose type rhetoric you know would uh, you that is uh China would, would not uh, does not dread resorting to force okay so you know really kind of disturbing uh, sort of rhetoric has become you know it's the new normal in both countries okay so this is in writing this book I'm trying to reverse that. Uh, what seems to be becoming conventional wisdom. I think I'll skip this in the interest of time. But if you, um, this is uh, quite current. I think this was uh, 20, in 2014, a Chinese strategist uh, in a very prestigious journal here. Uh, this is a Beida professor saying, you know, effectively China has the advantage in close into its coast, in the near seas. Okay, so it shows a kind of new confidence. I uh, wouldn't have seen that a decade ago. Here's a, uh, another translation. I worked on by another Chinese strategist, <coughs> Jiang Wenmu, where he said, "You know, Putin has shown us uh, exactly what we need to do. Uh, look at how he seized Crimea, and NATO had no recourse at all. So, I mean, here's some evidence that there. And I've looked at other things too that show that they are indeed looking to Putin's example. Uh, that's become quite commonplace." And. Um, <coughs> Again, looking at some of the TV reporting, here's an admiral who's uh, a very frequent uh, TV commentator saying, you know, he's looking at uh, our Seventh Fleet commander, who is calling for the Japanese to patrol the South China Sea. And here, you know, of course, as you can imagine, uh, that's that's a little like uh, waving a red flag in front of a bull, to my estimate. And here's some reporting. As you know, our Defense Secretary Ash Carter was just in, in the Far East, and he. Uh, around the time of that, uh, that was in April, uh, you know, this is the kind of reporting we saw in Chinese television, you know, is the U.S. going to build eight new military bases in the Philippines, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's a pretty dramatic statement. Um, so that, you know, this is the tenor of kind of discussion in China. As I mentioned that, I think I, we talked briefly on, on my earlier slide about that uh, new missile. There's a lot of uh, kind of new capabilities out there that are worrisome. This is the test I was talking about. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, it's pretty disturbing uh, to watch, and uh, the, these are the kind of capabilities that are coming online. And here, uh, just quickly, again, how do, they, how do the Chinese assess the military balance? They are watching it really closely, and they know that our submarine force will actually come down to uh, just about 40 boats, 40 attack submarines uh, in 2028, so this is the uh, I could show you 10 different Chinese sources that have talked about this, so this is the level at which they are, this is being watched. Um, uh, They look at uh, Iran's capabilities, they say, Iran, well, they're doing okay, but they'd do much better if they developed a heavyweight supersonic cruise missile. I put this slide in here to show you, China has not taken that step of selling this kind of weaponry to, let's say, folks that we don't necessarily like, but this is where we may be headed, okay? Uh, It's worrisome. And here's another example of that. Uh, This is marketing arms to Latin America saying, gosh, there are a lot of people in Latin America who don't necessarily love the United States. And yeah, that's a great market to sell weaponry. Uh, this really hasn't happened yet, but it may. Uh, this may happen in the future. Uh, now, all that, let's put that aside for a second and consider that a lot of what China is doing out there, however, um, is a mu- of a much more cooperative uh, nature. And here I would highlight the uh, blue helmets. Uh, China has the most advanced uh uh, training center for peacekeepers in the world, actually, at this point. So that's a major contribution to international security. Uh, I, I just wrote a piece on their effort against, uh, uh, to take on the Ebola crisis. Uh, they they uh, put a considerable amount of people on the ground there, including the Chinese military. So uh, that's encouraging. Here's the head of the Chinese Navy visiting Naval War College, actually. And I'm proud to say that you know our institution has, has tried to do some uh, spade work on proving ties between the two militaries. So you know there there are these counter currents. Um, here's an interesting piece. Uh, I won't I won't give you too many of these uh, difficult slides, but uh, in this case, the Chinese scholar is saying, actually, uh, if you look at China has resolved its disputes in a rather peaceful way, and he's kind of arguing against other Chinese scholars, saying that you know we shouldn't be so bellicose, and that Taylor Fravel is actually right that China has settled most of its border disputes in a peaceful way. So there are, you know, these these voices in China that are also arguing for more reasonable approaches. Here's another uh, probably well-known to this audience, uh, Shereen Hong, a uh, very famous Chinese scholar, saying, look, this island dispute with Japan, it's not the sum total of Japan-China relations. And, uh, you know, we should, he even goes as far as to say that people shouldn't neglect the internal factor in China's... Uh, the, the Chinese domestic political factor in, in its uh, Japan policy. So there are these voices. Uh, here's one more. Th- in this article, they're saying, "How do Chinese and and American interests line up?" They actually line up pretty well in the Middle East. Okay, this was in uh, uh, in this uh, Middle East journal. So you know these kind of uh, articles, uh, which are be- I hate to say, are becoming quite a bit more rare, but. But there are voices in China that have been arguing for reasonable approaches. Here's the, here's the last uh, uh, piece I'll show you on this uh, of this type, but um, where uh, one of their very uh, uh, most uh, famous professors, um, Wang Yi Zhou at, at Beidang, uh is saying, you know, China has not done nearly enough to provide these public goods, these gonggong uh to the uh, to global security. So, you know. This is all very encouraging. Now I want to shift gears here, just in the in the couple minutes I have left here, um, and show you. I, I promise concrete proposals, and, and I'll show you a couple. But you know, since I make a hundred in the book, I'm not gonna. We're not gonna go through all a hundred. <laughs> I'll just show you a few highlights. Now, uh, here is a picture. of very. If any of you have been to China, and particularly the interior of China, you know, you know, you can, in some areas you can barely breathe, right? Um, because of the uh, coal. And indeed, global warming—I uh, would argue—is, is, you know, really, uh, maybe even the most salient issue in U.S.-China relations. <laughs> there was some recent progress at the summit between Xi Jinping uh, and President Obama back in November, but I'm arguing we need to go quite a bit further than that. And uh, you know, my these spirals, by the way, you'll see ten of them in the book, but they generally go from um, sort of easier things to much harder things. Uh, and maybe they involve one or two big leaps. Here's one where, where I suggest that uh, the U.S. might embrace a kind of per capita principle for, uh, for uh, emissions control. And China then might be able to accept the kind of uh, verification procedures, which is as not. There are some seats over here. Um, so that's an example of the kind of compromise that I'm advocating. Now, what about this hot-button issue that everybody's been talking about since these pictures came out, Right. China is playing in that sandbox a lot, right? Um, what do I say there? Uh, and I would love to walk through every step of this spiral, but let me just take one, you know, what I view as one of the most crucial steps, and that is we need some clarification of that U-shaped line. I mean, that obviously is hugely nettlesome and it's gotten everybody riled up for more or less as long as people have been looking at it on the map. Uh, so if China can move towards some clarification there, and we can talk about specifics a bit, uh, can the U.S. alter its position? Well, so far, the United States has advocated, really, that this had to be settled in a, multi- in a multilateral format, and I think that's a, it's, it's quite naive. Moreover, China has a good record of settling disputes in a bilateral way. So could, we, could the U.S. alter its position? Uh, we should talk more about these other pieces, maybe in the Q&A, because the South China Sea is on everybody's mind. But what about Japan? Uh, because we cannot have a stable and peaceful East Asia in which China and Japan are at each other's throats constantly. Um, I, unlike most uh, American scholars who look at this, I feel strongly that the history piece has got to be there. We cannot just put history behind us and say, well, forget about that stuff, let's be forward-looking. I think that approach has, has in a way, it has gotten us where we are today. That is uh, uh, stuck in a lot of hostility. I think we need to take uh, the history issue... Sort of take the bull by the horns. I would encourage everybody in this room, if they haven't already, to take a look at Ron Emitters' uh, t- 2014 book, which, uh, no, I don't think it's the last word on the issue, but it's probably the best account in English. something to be cognizant of. Uh, take a look at this movie, for example. There are many movies about the Nanjing massacre. Take a look at this one. It is eye-opening, I think, for anybody who's thinking about this issue, and it's, it's well past time to... Uh, integrate this into how we think about. Is that a Hollywood production? That one? It's a German film. German. Film. Uh, yeah. If anybody, yeah, if anybody doesn't know who John Rabe is, well, let's talk about it in Q and A because he's a fascinating figure uh, and one, one who, again, if you're thinking about China-Japan relations, you ought to know who this person is. Um, well, how to fix, you know, this most difficult relationship? And again, I would like to go through all the steps. They're all in here. This graphic appears. There are ten of these uh, spirals. And, and I, I purposely translated them in the book and so forth and, and, and made them very clear so people could look at them and quickly ascertain what I'm proposing. But that my grand, as it were, my grand bargain here uh, involves the Japanese Prime Minister going to Nanjing. I think that has to happen. Uh, there's simply no way to move beyond the issue. And by the way, that's, that's just the beginning of the whole process of historical rec- reconciliation. You know, I can talk about this more in the Q&A. I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy who lived in Germany, so I, you know, I, I feel like I have some understanding about what historical reconciliation is about. Um, let's talk about it. But, but Japan, of course, has to see something positive out of this improving relationship. And one of the things I advocate is that we want to see Japan on the UN Security Council. It's, it's, that's also well past time, and I think China would certainly consider that if, if we can move all these prior steps uh, in front of that,
1: what, what yeah. What's step one? The, you know, uh, what step see, one is? You in, seem to start. A step well,
2: well three. the reason I cut them off was because uh, they <coughs> it would show up way way too small. <laughs> I couldn't even read it from where I'm standing. But so uh, in the Q and A, perhaps we'll go back and I we can walk through the steps on this important one. Uh, the steps, usually the the earliest steps are, are fairly easy to accomplish. Um, in fact, in this in this case, for example, I'm advocating that. China and Japan engage in uh, counter-piracy; that they engage that mission jointly. Right now, they both have ships out there, and I've, I've understood they do have some kind of modest cooperation on, But they should undertake that mission together. Why not? And the U.S. could help facilitate that. Uh, I think I think that's within the realm of uh, possibility. I'm not just winding down here, but the, I think we also have to consider the larger relationship. And uh, you know, this is a very typical kind of um, headline in China. You know. The U.S. and Japan are working together to collude against us. Um, you know, as I said, the military rivalry is getting more and more intense. This bomber, we haven't really seen this bomber yet, but those missiles are out there uh, today and, and of great concern to, to me and my colleagues, I'll tell you that. But if we look at the larger strategic relationship, what kind of compromises might we see? And uh, one of the, what I'm looking to is how can we get to a position where China uh, radically increases its military transparency? for example, by clarifying its budgeting process, which is completely opaque right now, uh, and really out of step with global norms on transparency. So I think China could get there, but uh, again, as part of a step-by-step process, and one in which the United States uh, removed some of the legal barriers we now have in place to military cooperation. I can tell you that I've been affected by these uh, limits on on military cooperation, so we want to change that and begin begin serious cooperation with China, which we really have not undertaken today. Okay, um, just one last point as I close up here on the rebalance. Um, I think the rebalance has to be rebalanced. <laughs> um, I think there are a lot of problems with the rebalance as it now stands. I'm not going to go through all of this. We, we can do so in the Q&A if you like, but um, just to highlight a few points, uh, I think that As it now exists, the rebalance is really intensifying Chinese anxieties. I mean, I can see that across the board in these publications that I look at in Chinese. They're, you know, very kind of disturbing headlines. And, and, you know, there's certainly a lot of concern in China about where this is going. Um, You know, I think we have to keep our eye on the global balance of power. And I don't think uh, that rocks and reefs in the South China Sea or East China Sea are really... uh, let's say, I don't think they can impact the global balance. I think we have to keep that in mind. If we keep that in mind, we can look at this uh, these situations calmly and rationally and bring them to a uh, logical kind of settlement. Uh, I think we have to think about opportunity costs, that is, what is being lost in global security and in U.S.-China relations generally because of the focus on the rebalance. Uh, and I'm concerned that there isn't really a mechanism for Containing U.S.-China rivalry, and you know what we have, we I may mean, have seen over the last couple of days, the strategic and economic dialogue. But we, I think, we need something much more robust than that. I mean, the Sunnyland Summit that took place, I think, was it was a, a, a start on working on that, but it really hasn't done nearly enough to, to put the relationship on a stable foundation. Uh, last slide, I promise. <laughs> um, and this is this is maybe an odd way to end, but I will say that. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody who likes to walk around with a lot of books and recommend other books, and I want you to read this book before you read my book. Um, uh, I... I... Uh, Can we watch the movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fine movie, too. But I, I do think, you know, we have to step back and say, we can't just say, well, from a, us, we policy wants look, at a very practical level, it's better to move forward on a lot of these issues. Absolutely. But you need to have a larger picture. Of this relationship, and I often tell uh, visiting uh, admirals to where I work and so forth. I say, you know, have you considered how you might approach the world if if Chinese um, naval ships had patrolled the Mississippi, you know, for some 100 years after 1850? Well, that you know, that happened. U.S. Navy did patrol the Yangtze River after 1850 for almost 100 years, and most people aren't aware of that. But we have to come to this relationship with a bit of historical understanding of where. Uh, China is going where it sees itself. It it obviously comes with an enormous chip on its shoulder, and we have to consider that, keep that in our minds as we uh, look to kind of structure this relationship in a much more positive way. I I think right now it's a drift, and uh, we had better try for a uh, course correction. (laughs) All
1: right, let me stop there. Thank you very much. No problem, John. That is terrific. I mean, and gives you a flavor for what is a very detailed very specific recommendations which uh, I think as Lyle points out it, it is unusual um, you know what we can do instead of we can just lift those Nick you want to just put the shades up um, your, your discussion of the pivot the rebalance yeah. and you say we should rebalance the rebalance yeah. and talk about Um, understanding history do you think the rebalance has actually caused some of the problems is it fair to say that this decision which was done without consultation with a broad range of people in the United States actually has been a cause of caused the Chinese to react in ways which has created this this negative cycle. It's a good question, and I think um, we
2: we certainly should ponder uh, that that question. You know, I, I can I could relate several anecdotes uh, along those lines because I was con- consulted at various levels. In I, I mean, I might just you know, for example, I, I recall being on the end of a um, you know of a uh, let's say a, a phone consultation with some important folks in. Uh, In Washington, and one of the questions I was asked was, you know, Professor Goldstein, how can we package the pivot so that it will be, um, you know, won't be offensive in to to China? And you know, I I, that was one of those moments because this was not so long ago that I almost fell out of my chair, you know, laughing because you know it struck me as a ridiculous question to ask at this point. I mean, in 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 other words, the damage uh, has been done, and uh, you know. now look, a lot of people will turn around and say, uh, "Well, just imagine how much worse the region would be if we hadn't done the pivot." In other words, they'll say, effectively, kept China in a box, and um, and China is aware of our military capabilities and so forth. And um, and you know, it's that's not a, um, it's certainly not a ridiculous proposition. But I, what I fear is when you, if you look at an escalation spiral, okay. It's very difficult to say when the spiral started, and who started. And and I honestly, I, I believe it's kind of an intellectual fool's errand. Uh, and that um, look, if, when you go to Beijing, you'll hear a litany of you know all the things that the United States has been doing for the last twenty years that have bothered the Chinese. And, and some of it is far fetched, and some of it is quite concrete. You know, uh, and the same can be done in Washington. And I think a very similar kind of list appears and uh, both sides are completely convinced that the other one began the, this spiral but uh, as I said I see it mostly as a fool's errand if you're if you've studied any uh, international relations theory you know that the the um, you know these spirals are very common in kind of rivalry um, and that uh, these relationships are you know, have, have, uh, you know a misperception is impacting them you know, at every level and at every move, as it were. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to say um, w- we can't
1: know, but, but if I, I, thi- I have if no... If you're thinking yeah. about no. how to kind of change the policy, you need a view as to what the policy has done. I think to, it's a fool's errand. I'm not sure. Well, well if, I think... If you can understand what each action did and the reaction to it you then can make a conclusion as to how to change the policy if you don't you kind of are guessing yeah
2: well i think i'll agree with you insofar as i think it's certainly worth um let's say if we've tried kind of more hardline approaches it's certainly worth trying more let's say softer approaches i think that's clearly in order i mean to me one can step back and say, at a very simple level, you know, are we better off today than we are, than we were five years ago? And I think I I would no. say uh, certainly not. I mean, right. both both uh, situations in the East China Sea and South China Sea, and for that matter, in, uh, in several other domains, I think uh, have witnessed increased tension. So I think you know, the, absolutely, the question is
1: is in order, and, and uh, we, we should be asking. But if you talk about the Diaoyutai. And when the problems really intensified in the Yaga Dao. And I think that really illustrates what is going on in a broader context. That you know, we had a Japanese government, when, when we had the, um, uh, the fishing trawler ram the yeah. Coast Guard And we had a Japanese government that wasn't very sophisticated deal with it in a way that was quite surprising and the Chinese responded to that kind of action by a very unsophisticated Japanese government and we interpreted it as the beginning of China's more assertive policy then the Japanese changed the rules on the Dao when they nationalized it, and we and they responded to that, and we said the Japanese are being more aggressive. Well, I look at those two instances, and I say this is like a National Football League game. Any any NFL fans here? <laughs> who gets the penalty when there's a personal foul? The guy who retaliates, not the guy who commits the original foul, and that's what's going on. We're th- we're throwing the penalty flag on Chinese for aggression, whereas it was the Japanese who changed the rules. I mean,
2: I, I think uh, certainly there is there is a, a lot of sense in what you said, and, and I think, um, you know, I I'm, I think these are very kind of gray areas and, and what some people perceive as an escalation, I think, maybe kind of uh, mostly uh, hype, or let's face it, in, in a lot of these circumstances, it's about... Um, domestic politics, even in the United States, but but particularly in both the Japanese and Chinese context. I mean, uh, for an example, I think, you know, a lot has been said about China's assertive um, foreign policy, but for the most part, a lot of these, uh, a lot of Chinese behavior in these crises has been, more or less, has been uh, parading some Coast Guard boats around. Uh, You can't really occupy an island with a Coast Guard boat. It just sort of goes around patrols. For the most part, these boats are also unarmed. So, I mean, you know, I think we have to keep uh, keep a little bit of um, common sense here. And, and part of the bedrock common sense that I want to apply to these uh, maritime disputes, you know, I work at Naval War College, so we we do have the foremost experts in, in legal aspects and strategic aspects of maritime disputes, but I'm trying to inject the common sense, the wisdom that, you know, these rocks, they're rocks. You know, More, le- more often than not, they're rocks we're talking about, not islands. Uh, And that these uh, rocks are not worth, um, they are not, they're certainly not worth World War III, uh, but they're not worth um, any kind of military conflict for any of the countries involved. Uh, But they're also, and this is worth considering, they are also not worth strategic rivalry. Because strategic rivalry has a lot of costs, right? I mean, those are are ships and submarines and Coast Guards that these countries are building and not know roads and trains and schools and labs and you know and, and uh, uh, you know energy efficient technologies and you know in other words there are real costs to pursuing a militarized rivalry and I think these costs are coming to fruition so it's not it's not just the danger of war which is increased but uh, so we need right. to yeah.
1: as it were stand up for rationality here yeah it's it's obviously it's about the budgeting for your colleagues <laughs> are 15 20 years from now <laughs> so they're trying to anticipate what is going to be going on spending money today, which is not going to improve America's infrastructure or other things. The same is being said on the Chinese side. That it's really it's not that we're going to go to war. It's budget. It's the cost of budgetary allocations. Yes. And indeed, you know, many Chinese I think
2: uh, do appreciate the fact that yeah, yes, they want to see a stronger China, and, and really in some ways that is uh, driving this and this kind of uh, let's say. Uh, anxieties uh, across the board. I mean, I do agree that China's military has been making rapid strides, as I showed. and that's a fact. But again, int- intentions are different than capabilities, and I think we have to keep that in mind. But there are many Chinese voices that are also concerned. They don't want to see all their uh, wealth being thrown at, uh, you know, into weaponry and so forth. They, they realize that that is a, uh, a bankrupt road. In fact, they've studied very closely the Soviet experience and they, so they know well that they do not want to walk down that road. So I hope, hopefully, they'll be wiser. We'll take wisdom, though, on both sides of the Pacific to get there.
1: What do your colleagues think of this book? <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a, that is a great question. We, um, you know, we're having a good dialogue. I'm, I'm happy to say that the uh, uh, the, the U.S. government has, uh, you know, has set up these colleges to look at strategy and international relations, and, and they're quite used to having, uh, well, let's say, a, a panoply of views, um, i happy to say. So I mean, you know, there, there has been, I, I will confess there's been a bit of head scratching, um, but I think, you know, by and large, people are, are comfortable with the fact that, that, that really as a nation, we need to have a debate about these issues. Um, the public has to be involved. That's part of why I'm here today. But, but, but the military itself also needs to debate these issues internally, and especially among people who you know who know the difference between the various types of submarines and missiles and so forth, because the question, the big question out there is, you know, how, you know is this a threat to U.S. national security? As I'm looking at most of what I've seen, uh, I can say uh, generally this is not
1: a threat. Right. Could a similarly placed Chinese write a similar book That's a very interesting question, and, and we'll see Can where... somebody at NDU write a book like this? Well, I will so say I was... It would be <laughs> Neibu or, or Guozhampo, me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I was at the Xiangshan Forum in, um, in Beijing last uh, fall, and you know I, I will say that uh, my sense is uh, that there are many... Um, although there are a lot of hawks, Absolutely. I remember walking out of one particular session during the conference, and uh, this—I this, uh, won't name any names—but a, a very hawkish general who's famous in China, uh, strolled out of the room. He's a, he's a big, scrapping guy. In the U.S., he would have been a football player for sure. He walked out, and he was immediately mobbed by dozens and dozens of reporters. You know, everybody else was ignored, but he, you know. So you could see in that little vignette that you know the Chinese themselves are kind of hungry for this. Um, you know, for this kind of nationalist uh, rhetoric, um, this kind of hardline approach. But I will say, you know, I, I think he is in a minority, uh, really. Among Chinese military scholars that I know, at least those, that's the group I know best, there are, I'll say this, there are, there are plenty of doves, plenty. Uh, so uh, your suggestion is not so crazy, um, and, and I'm frequently quite reassured that they understand the risks
1: that we're talking about. So, you know, let's, we'll temper the pessimism with, it, with some optimism in that regard. In my discussions with the PLA, what they say is you always ask for freedom of speech. Now our retired military officers have freedom of speech, and they go That's on it. Phoenix TV and they, they, they speak very nationalistically. So be careful what you wish for. Can you say, have you briefed PACOM on this or, or you, be, you may not be able to answer that in which case that's fine.
2: No, I, I, I mean I am, uh, I am briefing the book around the U.S. government, and I, you know I'll say um, although a lot of people disagree with me, um, there are you know people are uh, are listening and they're interested, and uh, you know people have been encouraging, uh, have not, I could not have not been out to paycom to share uh, my ideas here recently, but but I would like to, so that that I think
1: will happen. I think that would, be, uh, that would be valuable. Can you go back to your slide on, on the the um, J- Japan-China uh, yes, yes. relationship and show us... Oh, it's not going to show us what number one and two are. Well, actually, I do have it in my deck here. Because I'm curious. In other words, how do you... You're in this cycle. How do you break out of um, the cycle? I, rea- I realize you can't read these, so <laughs> I'll... Uh,
2: Reduce, Marie. Go ahead. So I could just walk through the steps really quick, uh, if you like. I I don't want to take too much time here, but just very quickly. Uh, Yes, here I start with kind of a, you think it's a big step. I say that the United States should reduce the marine presence in Okinawa. As a matter of fact, we're already planning to reduce that presence. So I think it's great to propose something that's basically already underway. Uh, And many of those marines will move to Guam. Um, That's okay, but I actually think Okinawa will be better off, Japanese politics will be better off, and indeed uh, even our strategic position, I can elaborate there, will be better off if we uh, reduce some of the the troops in uh, Okinawa. I I argue at that point Beijing should accept a trilateral uh, negotiations process. So far they're kind of stonewalled on that, but I think trilateral configuration of negotiation can be very promising. You know, I say that as a political scientist. I think you know, multilaterals are way too big. Bilaterals limits a limit. being the third party. Yeah, a trilateral negotiation. A lot of people are saying this. I'm not the only. Swain, for example, has advocated this a lot. Uh, so, but I think there's promise there. One of the few others who thinks the pivot is a bad policy. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, as I said, I think they, that China and Japan could join hands in counter piracy. I think that that's pretty easy to accomplish. Um, now. Talk about the rare earths, where China uh, allegedly—by the way, some some analyses have, have questioned this—but whether China had withheld rare earths from Japan, I argue that it's less a question of fact, but China should just say, you know, let's in order to move beyond this, they need to make some kind of step here on rare earth to say that they will try to kind of assure these shipments. Now, I get that 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 may not be that may be very difficult to enforce in a crisis, so forth. But a lot of these steps are about symbolism. And speaking of symbolism, the next step is very hard for Japan, obviously, but I advocate for the Prime Minister to go to Nanjing. I think that's essential. If anybody knows any history of German politics during the Cold War, that Billy that Brandt moment uh, where, where the German Chancellor went to Auschwitz and fell on his knees, that is what is needed. Now, he's got to go beyond that, and I explain in the book. I, I'm even uh, on record. Uh, here, I agree with the South Koreans who have argued very strongly for some form of reparations. I think that has to occur. Uh, we can talk more about that now. What could China do to reciprocate? Uh, how about accepting the median line as a settlement in the East China Sea? I think China could go there. I think there are reasons to show that China, in a, in a way, they have accepted that already, but to formally accept that. And from there, we move to what I advocate as joint administration of those contested rocks. And again, you know, maybe in theory, it sounds hard, but actually, practically, that would not be difficult to accomplish. I think we could get there. Now, China has to throw Japan another bone. I argue a good bone would be constitutional reform. We can talk more about that, but there's a lot of discussion about the Japanese Constitution. I think if if we undertook all these steps, I think China could go there, and I think Japan would be better off for it. Uh, That would help their internal politics and so forth. Then I... And here, you know, people may roll their eyes a bit, but I'm going to say we need to think about reforming the U.S.-Japan alliance. And here... I'm almost suggesting uh, we would just move more toward sort of air and sea forces and less ground forces, you know. But again, a lot of this is about symbol. Uh, so some restructuring, I think, would help there. And then we get to the final step where Japan gets a seat on the uh, United Nations Security Council, which, you know, I think would be a very important step for, for global security, you know, as far as Japan be a contributor and having an important voice but now, now you can't jump to the last step you've got to go step by step and build trust in the
1: spirals I think that's very interesting uh, I will open I have dozens of other questions as you can see <laughs> but let me open the uh, open the floor to some some questions start with Herb and then I'll go
3: to Isaac okay. uh, thank you for your presentation when meeting with American admirals, and we've had the CNO, uh, New York for lunch and various other things, and, uh, they have, uh, uh talked about their worries. They have looked uncomfortable when we, uh, quoted the Seventh Fleet Admiral saying he lost sleep at night over the Chinese aircraft carrier. They said, well, we send him some aspirins, they don't lose sleep over the aircraft carrier. Yeah. But, but the thing is, uh, they said, well, the nine-dash line, and the Chinese are claiming all of it. We said, well, the South China Sea is, is China's Caribbean, you know. Uh, the, it's the Monroe Doctrine. They're not claiming sovereignty over the South China Sea. They're just saying that they don't want other people uh, to go in there and grab things. And so they're going to maintain supervision over You know, we used to invade various... Caribbean islands all the time. When was the last one we invaded? Grenada, you know. Uh, and so what the Chinese are doing down there, I think it would be very comprehensible to you, uh, I've said uh, to the admirals, and they said a Chinese Monroe Doctrine. Have you Have you heard them say that? I've said, well, as a matter of fact, they've smiled when I've mentioned it, but they don't want to be accused of imitating the U.S. So my question to you is, do you discuss the Chinese Monroe Doctrine mm-hmm. in the Chinese Caribbean and the South China Sea with the admirals, or will they let air out of your tires in the parking lot? <laughs> yeah. um, probably
2: the latter situation. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, I take the bus to work, actually, uh, to keep my carbon emissions low so they they can't take air out of the bus.
3: You my bike cars. in Newport, <laughs>
2: Um it's, it's a fascinating process to work sometimes. Yeah, occasionally. That's also low carbon emission. Um, the, it's it's fascinating that you raise the issue of Monroe Doctrine because I'm, I'm considering actually writing an article that would be something in the effect of, you know, really looking at how the Chinese talk about the Monroe Doctrine because that is, it's, it's very interesting. that They actually are starting to discuss it a lot, you know, and what was its meaning and why did the U.S. undertake this approach and how, you know, in effect, you know, how did the United States get away with it, you know, as part of the... Uh, But there's actually very intellectually there's a very interesting side of that, and and at least one of the analyses that actually I just I discuss in the book. Actually, if you look at the uh, I think it's chapter six that I talk about Latin America, and actually discuss one of those um, articles about the Monroe Doctrine in detail. And and they actually one of the analysts says, uh, you know, in fact the United States, um, yes, they did a, what the U.S. in the Chinese perspective did did a lot of you know aggressive kind of Maneuvers and actions, and that I think is incontrovertible. But, um, but in effect, we're able through, uh, let's say, the provision of public goods and by uh, you know bringing a lot of these countries along, we're able to kind of mollify and, and uh, you know let's say um, restore their reputation, you know, uh, in Latin America. And they they sort of look at this and behold, you know, that's quite extraordinary, and, and China should kind of model on itself on this. So that's fascinating. I, I invite you to look at those passages. But just to, to take your question a little more narrowly now on what's going on in the South China Sea, I mean, I quite agree with you that um, it, it, it's not shocking. I mean, this area generally, not all, but most of the South China Sea is very proximate to China. I mean, these are China's maritime approaches, let's put it that way. Uh, so we can, you know, I think we have to see that great powers, you know, by and large are, uh, let's say, tend to be assertive in their... In, in, in their you know, in, in the areas proximate, uh, you know, seeing what Russia did in Crimea. So I think it's not, um, you know, in that sense we have to, we, we can even view uh, some of China's actions there as reasonable. I, one more thing I want to say is that, you know, China is an incredible maritime trading juggernaut. You know, I think a, a study was recently done on the ship traffic that's going through the South Tennessee and you know, some, some astronomical number or a percentage, you know, something on the order of 78% is actually just going back and forth from Chinese ports. So the idea that China is going to kind of erect toll barriers and start, you know, checking people's documents as they go in and out of the South China Sea—it's I mean, complete, completely, uh, in my view, um, uh harebrained. I mean, it—it de- it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so, so Ch- I don't think China will seek to kind of cut off or or restrict, you know, uh, any kind of movement or trade patterns. Um, and uh, just one more comment on South China Sea is I to me, this makes very little sense as a military strategy. That is, you don't in in the age of precision weaponry, you know, you don't set up, you know, your key base on some rock somewhere, right? Because it will be destroyed in the first few minutes of any war. Okay, so these are not, you know, key installations that will enable China to do, you know, to launch some great war of aggression in Southeast Asia. Now, what this is, is about symbols, right? Uh, In my view. Uh, Xi Jinping, and the leadership cadres in China—they need these photos, the same photos that have ticked a lot of people off in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Those same photos, you know, are something that are you know, making China, Chinese, many Chinese people feel, you know, proud that their country is standing up towards claims. These are these are rocks that China already occupied. They were occupied generally in the 1970s and 80s. So China's been there for a long time. They just haven't taken the step to build runways and so forth. So I, you know, these, as you to use your words, they do not keep me up at night. And I think we can more or less say, you know, China wants to pour concrete. You know, I'm sorry for the corals, but the strategic implications are are not are not uh, extensive in my opinion. Isaac. Thanks. Is a real, here's a real South China Sea expert. I think we should direct all questions to. Uh, to uh, Isaac. He's a very promising
0: PhD candidate. Uh, I, w- I wonder if just extending this this question a bit further, if you could, I don't know if you have one in the book or not, uh, discuss what a cooperative um, virtuous cycle or cooperative spiral might look like with respect to the U.S. and China and U.S. intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance operations uh, in areas that may or may not fall within the reported Chinese Monroe Doctrine. And I guess just to to throw some... sorry, I missed the last sentence. If you could walk us through what a cooperative spiral would look like with respect to the U.S. and China and military activities in exclusive economic zones. Okay, yes. Uh, And just to sort of frame the problem in a way, what are the circumstances under which the United States is going to willingly accept reduced access to those areas? And what are the circumstances under which China would willingly reduce its capability to deny access to those areas?
2: Okay. I mean, those are those are excellent questions. Um, you know, I, I do take this up a bit, and it's it, by the way, you know, I, I think Steve asked me how I whether I get beat up by my colleagues more or less, and, and over this question, I do. Uh, you know, I, I'll show you my black and blue marks and so forth. Um, you know, this is something that the U.S. Navy, you know, it's, it's I'd almost go so far as to say it's part of our DNA um, as, a, as an organization. Uh, that is, in, as, as Isaac put it, the close-in surveillance, um, you know, and, and I feel that I have made this a part of my cooperation spiral on the South China Sea where I took it up very directly, and I invite you to look at the passages in that part of the book, the Southeast Asian chapter and the South China Sea discussion. That, that's actually the longest chapter in the book, so I... You know, I feel very strongly about its importance, and as you can see, it's dominating headlines. I, I call the, the title of the chapter, you know, The New fault of Gap. So the South China Sea is on everybody's mind. But um, here is where I take it up. I don't, again, I don't think you can see the wording here, but um, what I'm suggesting actually is, is part of the solution here is to, um, again, this is very hard for the U.S. to consider. Uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say let's take off the table the idea that we were going to cease these operations. I don't think we're just not going to get there and and you, you know Isaac what Isaac hasn't said is he's a, uh, he's a specialist on, on maritime legal issues and I think any maritime lawyers here would you know um, immediately object the idea that the United States would kind of stop this activity and I, I myself feel that we need to continue this at least the right to, to do this I mean, we can go into the legal aspects of that but what I'm arguing for is a reduction in surveillance. I think that can be done. I think it's very much in, in order, uh, partly because we have other methods of gaining a lot of this surveillance, of uh, uh, gaining the intelligence. Uh, but also, I believe that this um, the, the current intelligence posture, uh, in my view, is doing a lot of damage to US-China relations. Uh, they, they have now, uh, several times, the Chinese have put this on par with the Taiwan issue, uh, with Taiwan arms sales as kind of two uh, bedrock uh, issues that are poisoning uh, U.S.-China security uh, cooperation, security interaction. Um, so how does this work in the spiral? What I'm saying is if China were to open this giant new base that they built, in the, it's on the southern tip of uh, Hainan Island, it's uh, 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 Yalongwan, Uh, It's a giant base, it's really, if you look at the satellite photographs, it has a a cave of extraordinary dimensions, I mean, that's somewhat, uh, you know, any, you can understand why the ASEAN countries are a bit alarmed, right, and in fact, it tracks pretty well, the base was completed more or less around 2006, and a lot of this tension, you know, has been flowing, but if you look at the dimensions, this base looks designed to hold a a fleet of rather, you know, enormous proportions. so it's disturbing. And like I said, a lot of it is invisible. That is, it's in, in caves and so forth. So um, I'm advocating that, not that they're going to open this to the US Navy. I don't expect to get a tour anytime soon. But what about to the, for the ASEAN nations? How about if the ASEAN states were to have an annualized tour of that and maybe a couple other Chinese bases in the area? To me, that would be a major step for Chinese transparency. And I think China could go there. Uh, you know, As China often says, they don't have anything to hide. Um, <laughs> I don't I, honestly. I don't think that anybody would be surprised what they saw there, but it could be done, and that would be a major step. Now, in return, I think at that point the United States should consider reducing our surveillance. Uh, it's been written in the New York Times. I, I honestly, I don't know, not know. you know, I think the actual number surely is, is classified somewhere. But the in the New York Times has said that these uh, surveillance flights, for example, and there are other types of surveillance, ships and so forth, but are happening on a more or less a daily basis. That's a pretty high frequency in my, you know, to my estimate. So I think that could be reduced, you know, perhaps even dramatically. And I think that would be a very strong symbol to China that the United States is ready to move into a more kind of cooperative posture. And as I said, I think all that intelligence could be um, garnered in, in other ways. So that's how I see it playing out. And again, that's, those are the first steps. It's what I call a linking of the transparency issue, which China has a big problem with transparency. I'll be the first to say that, and I... Throughout the book, you'll see again and again, I'm saying China has to improve, and that is one of the major parts of the tension in U.S.-China relations is China's uh, lackluster performance on transparency, but that's the way China can move forward. They've, they have taken some positive steps there, but more then we can move start to move um, into the cooperation spiral there. Richard? Go
1: ahead. Richard? Yeah. Peter. Peter, <laughs> uh, I'm sitting here i blind in my old age.
0: Um, let me preface, as you prefaced uh, from the beginning, my views don't represent uh, uh, the Israeli stance uh, as a former officer in the Israeli uh, military, but actually head of our military cooperation to the Far East. Ah. Um, so, but I'm, I'm curious, So I don't represent <laughs> the views of uh, this and, uh, and, uh, presence here, but I'm curious I, I happen to agree with a lot of your views, and, and certainly on the side of uh, what's going on in South China Sea, and a lot of the rhetoric and the national rhetoric that's going on uh, in China. I think a lot of sort of the, uh, what you see in the headlines uh, is, I argue most times, uh, is really just political rhetoric. Uh, yeah. And it's whether for it's advancement, and what the general is, or what the, the, the military group is at the time, or whatever, think tank, or... It, it seems to me but I was curious from your perspective and I have a couple questions to sort of add together if you don't mind. Um, you say this the escalation which could potentially spiral out of control. I think I understand from you. You're, and I think we all agree here, or somebody heard it, Steve. We're not worried about World War 3 I think what we may be worried about is an unintended accident, if you will. Certainly considering some of the recent actions by the Chinese military uh, of something happening. But yet, I don't think that's going to lead to World War III either. I don't think it's anybody's any interest. I don't find, taking the nationalist views of the South China Sea aside, China has never been, if you will, and not really an aggressive nation. I don't think it's looking, it's not looking to take over the world. I think it's certainly looking to observe itself as, and, and some people argue, you know, you say China's a developing, superpower, I think it it is a superpower. There's no question about it. Uh, And I think it's just playing its role, if you will, and it's played a positive role, uh, certainly on its forces in the UN. Um, So I'm not sure if the rebalancing of the rebalancing that you're referring to is it that the U.S. has to be the number one at the end of the day, at at the top. Is U.S. policy towards China uh, sort of trying to encase it in a box where it's trying to slow down uh, its military advancement in the world, having better technologies and more advanced equipment. And you're right, we are seeing that in many different areas within the Chinese military. But are we seeing this? I'm not sure if you really speak about it in your book. Uh, are you seeing some of the rhetoric on the U.S. side Um and particularly on Capitol Hill, also being driven by the defense industry. Um, I think the hawks, uh, as we've seen, certainly, I'm sure you're quite familiar with the annual report the Pentagon puts out on China. Uh, are you seeing some of that going on at Capitol Hill, coming from the defense industry, the jobs and the, uh, opportunities, if you will, across the board, both for the U.S. military and for sales of the. Do across the world, is that not also influencing the topic? And and the last point I'd say to that, and and you mentioned it briefly, is China's military sales to other parts of South America or some of the Arab states and so forth, like that. And yes, you know, is that a response? Is that maybe, maybe not just a natural evolution? Of its entrepreneurialism, no different than Boeing or Lockheed selling its planes and advanced equipment uh, to our allies, and China creating its own goodwill uh, in countries that it has strategic uh, strategic interests, and yet still being able to fill a gap of selling them equipment that's cheaper, maybe on on par with the U.S. or more advanced. But is it that just not that not natural?
2: Uh, all, all great points, and I, I, have no real disagreement with your assessment. I mean, I do make the point in the book that I think it would be quite destabilizing if China began to, um, to export a lot of military equipment to Latin America. You know, historically that has been a, a trigger, actually, and, and the United States has been uh, extremely, you know, reacted, let's say, very negatively to that kind of development. Are you worried
0: that equipment will be used? the United States or well you know I mean it, it seems far-fetched America. Yeah. South America?
2: well it seems very far-fetched today um, I think but like even not you know as recently as the uh, we had the Hugo Chavez uh, you know that tension with the United States and people were, you know there were this decent amount of muttering about what kind of equipment was the Venezuelan regime you know importing and so forth so look, I'm not, it's not about, to me, it's not, you know, about practical constraints on what the United States, you know, can and can't do in Latin America. It's more, it's a lot of symbols. I mean, we all look at U.S.-China relations here. I think we know so much of the discussion is about that. Now, you know, I think many Chinese would say, well, you know, let me get this straight. So the U.S. can sell weapons like crazy in our neighborhood, in China's neighborhood, and we can't sell weapons in in America's backyard, that's completely unfair. And there's something to that, and I... I actually, you know, Americans should reflect on that and think about, you know, we really, for example, I've been asked a lot in the last couple of weeks about American military sales to Vietnam, and I'm strongly recommending against that. I think, again, it's not so much I'm worried about the actual system, but I'm worried about the, the, the symbolic uh, aspect of it, where many Chinese are concluding that the United States is hell-bent on, you know, making trouble for China. So I think that's uh, just one last thing I'll say because I think we're running very low on time but I, you know I am worried about inadvertent escalation I'm worried about the planes colliding I mean it has happened before people were killed before uh, I, I mean could you imagine in 2001 if, if you know that our plane landed on a Chinese airstrip it was seriously damaged there were about 20 uh, American uh, servicemen on that plane can you imagine if they had been killed I mean that very well could have started the war uh, absolutely but So inadvertent escalation is a problem. But I'm also worried about wars that could happen by design. I mean, it seems very far-fetched, right, Uh, in our daily lives. uh, And that, in in fact, we we, uh, are in the nuclear age. It's hard to conceive of war between nuclear powers. uh, And, um, you know, of course, this city knows better than anybody the financial costs that would arise from a conflict. And yet, you know, uh, wars happen countries calculate their interests and so forth. I mean, even who could have thought that we would be in this spot with Russia today uh, and now people even talk about that possible conflict. So I, I think we need to use all possible caution uh, restraint and those of us who understand the details of this relation need to work proactively to solve the major problems. Even the Taiwan issue, I, I don't want to raise that at this late hour, but, we'll but have have time Taiwan <laughs> even that, which has looked a lot better than it had, right? Yeah. We don't talk that much about it now. Well, guess what? In the next year, we're going to hear a lot about Taiwan. So we need to deal with these bedrock kind of fundamental contradictions, we need to talk about them, deal with them, begin
1: to move forward. We haven't made as much progress as I would have hoped. We are out of time, but Lyle, thank you. So this has given you a flavor of the kind of stuff that is in the book. It really is it's got some very imaginative proposals in it, very specific and well worth reading. But thank you so much for joining us.